All right, well, let's turn there. First uh, Timothy 1, 12 through 17. The title of the study is Spontaneous Praise. Um, Paul's giving instruction to his young protege, Timothy, and he's telling him that what he needs to do is to confront the false teachers. Don't let them say anything other than sound doctrine. And as he is exhorting young Timothy in ministry, it just captures his attention that, wow, the Lord put me in ministry. I'm talking to this young man, but there was a day when that experience happened for me, and I was, I was put into ministry, and he just breaks out into this beautiful um, praise. He praises the Lord not only for what he has done in his life, but he's going to, at the end here, in verse 17, praise the Lord for who God is himself. And so that's kind of the, the, the outline that we'll have, but we'll take it just phrase by phrase as we, we come back to this, but let's read it first. At verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus, who came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might be shown all long suffering, might show all long suffering, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible. To God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we begin with this, this, this phrase, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He is thankful to the Lord. And, and the way in which Paul writes, the, it actually could be read, and I give continual praise to the Lord. It's not just I did it once for what he did, but that he's living in the attitude of praise and worship. Now, we'll talk more about what he's thankful for in just a moment, but I want to talk more about just thankfulness in general right now. It's a word, it's a theme that Paul comes back to over a hundred times in his epistles. It can be found with words like joy or rejoice or thanks or thanksgiving or praise. A hundred times in his epistles, he makes reference to something like that, which tells us of the attitude of his heart. And that praise and, and even spontaneous praise in the midst of writing a letter to correct and to tell him how to handle a situation, he takes up precious space on, a, on, the, on, the, on the pages of Scripture to just begin to worship the Lord. I mean, he could, he could have said, well, you know, I mean, I all know we're supposed to worship the Lord. I don't need to do this. But no, it's, it's more than just uh, putting it down. It, it's a, a reflection of his heart and his life. And if you think about it, when you are around people that are praising the Lord and giving thanks to the Lord, it does have that similar impact upon you, where you begin to be thankful. You begin to praise the Lord. You begin to worship. And Paul, you may say, well, of course he's thankful. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. I mean, what else? I mean, he's had these great revelations and all kinds of experiences with the Lord. I would be thankful if I was the Apostle Paul as well. Well, don't think for a moment that he had some kind of, uh, you know, above the, the fray experience in the ivory, you know, towers of faith. He was down in the trenches experiencing all kinds of hardship. 
Here are 14 things that I think we could consider that he would have dealt with. Some of them are explicit in Scripture. Some of them may be just my opinion of what took place, but you'll get the idea. He lost his job in the Sanhedrin, or at the very least, his climb to the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body in Israel. His family deserted him. His friends deserted him. His wealth was lost. He lost his home. He lost his country. He lacked food, clothes, and shelter many times, was beaten over and over, thrown into jails around the world, framed and imprisoned, suffered physical ailment, experienced shipwreck, was bad-mouthed, slandered, and gossiped by a church that he had planted, and eventually died a martyr's death. Ivory towers, not for him. Dungeons, but not ivory towers. And so in the midst of this, he's able to talk about being thankful. And not just like, oh yeah, I was thankful last week at church. It's a continual attitude of praise that was coming forth in his life. And I believe that we've lost this discipline of giving thanks and we need to reclaim it. Well, you know, if I get this right and this comes together, then I'm going to be really thankful. No, you won't. Because if we can't thank the Lord as a generation of people that have had more material blessings than any other generation probably in the history of the world, and you might be able to pick another one, but you're not going to pick many, that have had more blessing than this country and that we live in, than other places in the world, if we can't be thankful now, what is it that's going to actually allow us to be thankful? Well, as soon as I get that job. But when you get that job, you get that person you didn't know that was going to be at that job that was going to make your life miserable. And so now you're hoping as soon as that person's gone, but then you get the doctor's note, and then your car breaks down, and then life happens. And we must get to the place where I am no longer waiting to praise and give thanks to the Lord when it all works out. What does David say? Help me finish this verse. The Lord is my shepherd. What? He was a a man that also experienced hardship and difficulty. Yeah, he was a king of Israel. There was some benefits to that. But he also experienced many challenges and many heartaches and many heartbreaks. And when we are able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, then we can say, I shall not want. To think that there was no request in his mind of, you know, this would be better if it was like that. I mean, that's just kind of being simplistic, really. Of course, there were things that he wanted. And there's things that maybe you want to see changed in your life. You can keep praying and you can keep working towards that end. But don't wait for it to happen to begin to be one that offers up the kind of praise and thanksgiving that we're reading about here. You know, the opposite or the antithesis of thankfulness is complaining and grumbling. And when we read through um, Exodus and Numbers, um, we find out how God feels about grumbling and thanksgiving. He doesn't like whiner babies, okay? He just, many times judgment came upon them for their complaining, because they lacked a thankful spirit. And so there is nothing that is keeping you or me from deciding, I'm going to be thankful I'm going to be not just thankful in a moment. I'm going to live in the attitude of continual praise. And this is the exhortation we're given in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We studied it not so many weeks ago. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's God's plan for your life, is that you would be a worshiper, that you would be one that is giving thanks. You know, 
I said that when you're one that's worshiping and you're giving things that has an impact upon other, others, guess what else has an impact but in a negative way? Complaining. And just always having something negative to say about the situation. I'm not referring to an honest appraisal of a difficult circumstance. I'm all for being honest about the trials that we face and the circumstances we're on in. But it's when I am, I'm, I'm just complaining about it. If God is your father and he's providing for you and he's your shepherd and he's brought you to this place for us to begin to complain and just, um, you know, I guess, whine against our circumstances, we're making a statement about God as our provider. We're making a statement about the Lord as our shepherd. And so the exhortation really comes from Paul's life of praise. And we move on and we see that he is, also makes reference to being one that was enabled for ministry. The whole subject of this verse is about being in ministry. He's thankful to be in it. Um, and he was enabled for it. Paul here harkens back to a moment of calling and empowering that he had received. Um, if we look at the word, you know, I was, you know, I am, you know, I, I'm thankful um, as being a continual process. This word actually is one that speaks back to a specific moment in time. It's looking back at an event. That's the kind of the way this, the, the grammar of this word is, is put together. Is there was an event that happened where I was enabled. And when, when was that? Now, he doesn't say specifically, but most would agree that it's when he was called. It's when he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute more Christians, to take them, arrest them, throw them in prison, separate families, leave children by themselves, try to stamp out any trace of follower of those that were worshiping Jesus as their Messiah. And he makes reference to this in that verse we read that he was a persecutor. This is what he was doing. But the Lord apprehended him and said, knocked him off his horse, a bright light comes and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he goes into Damascus blinded and humbled. And then a disciple by the name of Ananias comes to him and, and lays hands on him. And the scales fall from his eyes that, that formed when he was blinded by that light. And he received his sight. And Ananias said, Saul, you're a chosen vessel of the Lord, but you're going to suffer many things as being that vessel. And Paul was only too glad, having now realized that Jesus was the Messiah, to suffer for him. And it's at this point that I would say he also received that enablement. He received the calling. He received that salvation. He received a healing. There was an outpouring of the Spirit that came upon his life, enabled for ministry. All of us need an enabling. And there are a few ways, there's four ways in which I think we can look to see an enablement in ministry. One is Acts 1.8, where we will be endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit comes with that special empowerment upon our life to do the task. It's not salvation, an empowerment to do the work. Uh, also, the Word of God does this. Secondly, the Word of God is something that equips us. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 and 17 all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Listen to this, verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So we are, we are made ready and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we are also equipped through the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, each of us, we are told, are given a spiritual gift through which that power may flow. And in 2 Corinthians 9.8, we're given a grace to get the work done. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Does it sound like something's missing there? I mean, all sufficiency for every good work. When we step out, God is going to be there to make certain we have the grace to get his work done. And Paul now can look back and say, when I was called, I was enabled. And I bring, I'm emphasizing this point because I think among those that are following Jesus and trying to live their life for him and worshiping and being a part of the life of the body of Christ, I think among that group, the number one reason for those who don't serve in that group is because they just don't think that they can do it. They're afraid to mess up. I'm just like, I don't want to touch this. I don't want to like ruin somebody's life because I say the wrong thing. I'm afraid to do it. I don't know. And this is another story for those who don't think they have an interest to do it or they don't have the time for it. That's another group. I'm specifically thinking about those of you maybe that are feeling like, I just can't do it. I just don't have what it takes. And I guess in one sense, you are absolutely right. None of us have what it takes to do the work of the ministry. This is why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything apart from me. We need the help and the enablement of the Lord. But if that's the reason you're sitting on the sidelines, I pray that the word of God and the spirit of the Lord himself will at this moment encourage you to step out and to do those things that are put in front of you. I'm not trying to write your life. Don't do what I want you to do. Do what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. When David was a young teenage boy, he came you know, marching down into the valley of Elah, sent by his father. And as he got on scene, he saw the armies of Israel on one side, and he saw the army of the Philistines led by Goliath on the other side. And he hears this tower of a man, almost 10 feet tall, challenging somebody to a fight. I assume with a booming voice, don't you? I mean, 10 foot tall, he had to be a baritone. But it'd be really funny if he had a high squeaky voice. That <laughs> would be very funny. Um, but we'll go with the booming voice, just saying, you're nothing, and your God is nothing, and I will wipe you out. And David comes walking into the valley and goes, what? Who is this guy? And he goes up, he says, why is this guy blaspheming our God? Somebody needs to go shut him up. It's like, do you see the size of him? We're not going to go fight him. He goes, well, I'll fight him. And began to accuse him of pride and arrogance. You think you're something. He's like, no, I'm nothing. But I know my God and I know what he's done in the past. And I know he could work today. And so they say, all right, let's put the armor on you and send you out. That's amazing. That the whole army of grown men can watch a teenage boy say, I'll take him on. And they say, well, let's suit him up. And still nobody is willing to step up. How does that happen? Because they lacked faith. They didn't believe the word of God, which said, drive out these inhabitants. I'll be with you. You will overcome them. It's the same reason why when they were leaving Egypt 
And they came and sent the 12 spies into the promised land to go and see what it was like. That 10 of them came back and said, there are giants in the land and we are like grasshoppers. If we go to fight them, they're going to squash us like little bugs. We can't fight them. But two guys, Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 no. Bigger they are, the harder they fall. God's able to do this. And the congregation of Israel was persuaded by the negative report of the 10. And so they did not believe And for the next 40 years, that generation wandered and died in the wilderness. Everybody, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb, was able to go into the land with that next generation because they were believing and they were not afraid. And David is of that spirit. He, I mean, certainly he could look and say, oh yeah, he's stronger than me and he's bigger than me. And if he gets his hands on me, I'm probably going to be torn apart. But He believed God was going to do something different. He believed God was going to show up in some miraculous way. So they put the armor on him, which just swallowed him alive, right? He's like, I can't go in these things. I can't. They're too big. I'm not used to using these kinds of of things. And so he just goes with his sling and goes down to the creek. He gets five rocks. And then what was the, the text actually says, and he ran towards Goliath. He believed that his God was going to enable him. And this is where all of us need to be, is believing that God is going to enable us. Because it's not about you, and it's not about me, and it's not even our performance in the task. God is glorified in that you, we, I, bear much fruit. God's glory is on the line. Not your success, not your enjoyment, the glory of God, the purposes of God. And so we can take comfort from David or we can take comfort from what Paul experienced that as he was put in ministry, he was enabled to do the work of ministry. And he says this interesting thing, moving on in verse 12, that he counted me faithful because he counted me faithful. When? He put you in ministry when you were a blasphemer, an insolent man, a persecutor. You got saved And you got this call and you answered it. Where was the faithfulness that could have been measured? There was no faithfulness before he was put into the ministry. So what's being referred to? Well, I I believe 1 Corinthians 7.25 probably gives us a little bit of an indicator. And I pick up halfway through that verse. It says, Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. In his mercy has made trustworthy. And his mercy has made me faithful. It's God's mercy. And so the Lord looked ahead and and showed mercy. One author says, it's not that Paul, at that time of his conversion, had already proved his faithfulness, but that the Lord was willing to consider him then and there worthy of trust, and therefore as one who would be faithful. And he was a faithful servant of the Lord. He, he did fulfill the things that God had asked him to do. But I want you just to see. You're saying, thinking, well, yeah, what, what do I have to show for it? You have nothing but God's mercy that will make you trustworthy. He, it will get you ready to faithfully fulfill the work that God has called you to do. I don't know what it is, but you do. You know what your hand has been on before and where the Lord was blessing and maybe you took it off and and just begin to move into those things that the Lord has called you you know when we stand before the Lord 
it's going to be the most important thing to you is what did you do for the Lord? That's going to be what we are going to stand for, because our souls are taken care of, right? I mean, that's in, in, in the Lord. I mean, that's, we're not going to be judged and see whether we make it into heaven. Our works, our time, our energy, our talents, that's what's going to be reviewed. And that's going to be the only thing that matters in that hour. So he was counted trustworthy before he had done anything because his mercy had been experienced. The God's mercy had been experienced. Lastly, in verse 12, he says, I was thankful. If we go to the first, he was thankful for what? For putting me into the ministry. He, he was amazed that God would put him into the ministry after all the wrong that he had done, after all of his sin, after all of his rebellion. He was thankful. But I want you to see this. All those things that we talked about, those 14 things that we listed that he endured, he endured those things because he was in the ministry. And he says, I'm thankful that you put me in the ministry. He wasn't trying to avoid the very thing that was causing difficulty in his life. He saw it as an opportunity to praise the Lord. And, you know, all of us should just be amazed that we can do anything in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all above us. None of us are, if you will, it's above all of our pay grade, okay, to touch the least of the things in the kingdom of God. And the moment we think that we're really something and that I deserve better and I should have greater opportunities, we have failed to understand that we are just sinners saved by grace. And the Lord says, you want to work in my kingdom? You want to plow in my field? And that he would offer us a plow to put our hands on and see something eternal take place should cause that same spirit of thankfulness to erupt in our own heart and life. In verses 13 through 16, he begins to talk about this superabundant grace that he had experienced. In verse 13, he talks about everything that he had done that was wrong. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor. He's a proud man. But he obtained, obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. But I want to talk about this ignorance because we have this thought that many people push is that, well, if you don't know, then you're not accountable. And that is not a biblical thought. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, dying for sin, said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Oh, they were ignorant, but they still needed what? Forgiveness. Because what they were doing was wrong. And although they maybe didn't understand that he was the Messiah, they still needed to be forgiven for the things they were doing. Or Peter said in a similar thing in Acts 3.17. He says, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, but they still needed to be forgiven. They still needed to repent. Now listen, God has given light to all men. Creation itself reveals the nature of God. This is, and people are responsible for that light. Now, not everybody has heard the gospel. And so there is an ignorance, but they're still accountable for whatever light they have given. And it's our job to go to those who have not heard. And, uh, you know, unless somebody puts their faith and trust in Jesus, they can't have salvation. So there is this, although there is ignorance out there, it doesn't mean, therefore, now you, you're just not accountable. No, you're still accountable. 
And Paul says in verse 14, And the grace of our God, our Lord, was exceedingly abundant. And here, these three words, was exceedingly abundant, is a single Greek word that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. It's like Paul had to find a special word to use after just listing how sinful he was. It's like he was so sinful, he was so arrogant, he was so proud, such a blasphemer, such a, a murderer, that as he recounted it, he just, it, to say grace, it wasn't enough. To say abundant wasn't enough. To say exceeding wasn't enough. He had to say it was exceedingly abundant, which is to say this, no matter how sinful you are, God's grace is greater. How deep is your sin? God's grace is deeper. And this is what we read in Romans uh, 5, 18 through 21, where Paul writes about this grace. And he comes to the, this, this one phrase and he says, where sin abounded, grace abounded more? No, much more. There's no comparison to the depth of your sin, to the depth, the super depth of God's grace. So in other words, it's not like God has this much grace and you just kind of slide in there and just, ooh, I just... I just found enough. I mean, if I would have done like one more thing, I would have been over the line. No, that's not the way. God's grace is so amazing that it is exceedingly abundant. And so I just, I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to see that because, you know, for some, I bet you there are some that are not at church today. I don't mean just here, anywhere in our town because they're like, oh man, my life. What have I done with my life? There's no way God would ever let me come. I can't go under that new building. It's not even finished being built yet. I know what it's going to fall down. I mean, I make them really upset. And that's what people think is that if they walk into the house of the Lord, that some kind of terrible thing is going to happen to them. That there's no room for them to come back to the Lord. And Paul says, I was shown this super abundant grace to be what? A pattern. Why would God take the guy who was the foremost enemy of the cross and make him the foremost preacher of grace so that all of us would realize God will accept me. God will welcome me. Now, maybe you're looking at your life and like, yeah, but you just don't know. I mean, I've done things that I can't stand. And maybe even you look down with a judgmental spirit for, uh, towards those who committed the very things that you have done. And, and now you're thinking, I am that person. There's no way God could ever forgive me. Well, you were wrong to have a judgmental spirit to begin with. You shouldn't have looked at it. You should have known of the grace of God towards the worst of sinners to begin with. But now you've got to know it for yourself. And you've got to be willing to receive it. Oh, am I talking about cheap grace? Oh, there's nothing cheap about grace. Jesus had to hang on the cross to be able to show grace. So if you hear about this exceedingly abundant grace, as I like to say, don't like to say, but if you hear of this and you think, well, good, I can go out and sin now. Well, you don't know anything about faith. You don't know anything about the love of God because you would never do that. You would never think that God's been loving and gracious to me. Now I'm going to turn around and stick it in his face. That's the what. I, no, it doesn't work that way. When you experience the grace of God, it transforms you. It radically changes you. It doesn't make you perfect, but when you sin, you feel it. 
You feel it and you can't believe it and you come to the Lord. But our God is a God of grace. But this exceeding abundant grace that came to us, notice that it says, still there in verse 14, that it comes with faith. And it's through faith that we access this grace that saves us. If you will, faith, they are the hands that reaches out and brings in the grace of God. So where does this faith come from? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Oh, faith is a gift of God. He gives you the faith to receive this grace. Now, I believe in man's free will, but I also believe in the initiating sovereign work of God. And that we must respond. And so you have everything you need to walk in and receive this grace this morning. But you've got to decide that and understand that you need it and that you want it. And then, as a matter of your will, confess that Jesus is Lord and receive this salvation. But this grace, Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Or Psalm 145, 8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Joel 2.13, almost exactly the same thing. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Those three verses are all a description of the glory of God. And, and, And this is what I encourage you to do, is go back and look at the account of when Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God put him in the, cl- in the, in the, the cliff in the, of the mountain and passed by. And as the glory passed by, he looked. And this is the description you get when he saw the glory of God. Uh, you know, to see the glory of God is to see a God that is merciful. To see the glory of God is to see a God that's slow to anger. To see the glory of God and to have an encounter with God's glory is to know that he is compassionate. I think sometimes we make, and I'm not trying to demystify God, but we think of God's glory as some kind of mystical, powerful, you know, um, experience that's full of all kinds of strange things. That's the glory of God right there. The mercy of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God. And maybe, if you think about it, even at the beginning of our service, as we are worshiping the Lord and we are singing about building our life upon His love and the different things, you know, I am who I am because you said I am forgiven and I am chosen. And your heart was just like, golly, Lord, you are amazing. That is an experience with the glory of God. And this is who the psalmist and the prophet Joel is referring to in these verses that are there. God is gracious. There is a place for you to come back to the Lord or to come to the Lord for the very first time. Because it's not like you can, you're trying to just find the, how do I actually get into this grace? Is there even room? I don't know. No, there's room. Because it's much wider and it's much deeper than your worst day. Even a life of worst days. We close there in verse 17. He's been talking about how he's worshiping God for what he's done. 
But now he's going to worship God for who he is. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he responds to the calling, to the mercy, to God's superabundant grace with worship. And he refers to the king eternal. It wasn't just anybody that called him. It wasn't just a, a king of, this, of the world that said, hey, I've got some work for you to do. It was the king eternal that said, I want you in ministry. And he responds with just acknowledging that, that God is not created. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. Every being has a, a, a beginning, but not God. He's the eternal one. He's immortal. That is, he's not subject to death or corruption or decay like all of us and like everything on this planet. The Lord himself is immortal. There will never be a day when God is not. He will always be. He is invisible, which you think, well, I wish he wasn't. And I wish I could see him. Well, okay, 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. But then we read in Colossians of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every, creature, of every creature. The Father is not made of material. He's not a material being. He's a spirit. But the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the eternal pre-incarnate Christ, came and took on human flesh. This is why when they said, hey, show us the Father and it will be sufficient, Jesus responded and said what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I am what he is. If you want to understand the Father, then just look at me. And he was one that came you know, with grace and mercy. You look at how Jesus dealt with sinners. You look at how Jesus dealt with the religious hypocrites. And you begin to understand how and who our God is. And we also read, who alone is wise. God alone is wise. Take a back seat. It's not you and it's not me. And how do we do that? We read the word of God. And we let the word of God be the final say. If God alone is wise and God has given us his word... When we decide to set this aside, what we're saying, God alone is wise most of the time, but thankfully there's me. Because I've got a really good insight. And we say things like, well, I just, I know what the Bible says that, but what I think is, well, then you're saying that God is not alone wise. That he needs your assistance. He needs your little nuances to be able to really round out and complete how your life should be lived. It's arrogance. It's pride. It's stubbornness on our part. If we really believe that God is the all-wise one, then we will obey him. We will read his word and we'll say, that's it. God's word said it. Conversation over. You might struggle with it. It might not feel right. But if, as we submit to it, we submit to it in the faith that God alone is wise. And so his response to all of this, there in, at the end of verse 17, is that again of more worship. 
He says, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Honor is, to, is a public acknowledgement of worth. Glory recognizes a de- deserving person of reputation, that they are deserving of my public recognition of them. And so this is how we respond to the Lord, who is eternal, who is immortal, who alone is wise, is that we worship him and we declare his greatness. How do we do this? Um, well, as we, with our mouth, we worship him. Or as we live, the way in which we live our life, and as we speak of his greatness to the unbelieving world. All three of these things are ways in which we give him honor and glory through our lives. So as we wrap it up here, we are to be thankful. We are to be expectant of his mercy and enabling for the things that he's called us to do. We should be amazed by his super abundant grace. And we should be worshipful. And so hopefully all of us will give way for spontaneous praise. And if it's not there, make some reminders for yourself. You've got an iPhone probably or something else to remind yourself. Put a reminder down. You know, it's time for me to praise. It's time for me to step back and begin to give thanks to the Lord. Well, yeah, but, you know, if I just do that, it doesn't seem like it's real. Well, you know what? Sometimes you just got to start habits. You know what I'm saying? And we've been commanded to do it, and you have every reason to give thanks, and I have every reason to give thanks. So if you just got to begin to make this discipline kind of, um, I don't know, seem just very natural with reminders, then start there. But as your spirit begins to praise the Lord, you're going to realize that the Father is looking for those to worship Him in spirit and truth, and you'll be captured, and it will become a pattern in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. Not just grace, but super abundant grace. Lord, I just thank you. You came up with uh, the only time that this word is ever used is in the midst of reminding us and telling us that you have room for us, even in our darkest and most sinful hour. You came to save sinners, and you saved the worst of them all a murderer named Paul, so that we would know you've got room for us. We thank you, Lord, for this.